Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of My Sporting Mind. It's Charlie Webster here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm extremely pleased to say we're in Perth, Australia. Well, I'm not, but I've got Australian men's cricket head coach Justin Langer with me. Welcome, Justin, who is Hi. in Perth, Australia. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I know we were actually just chatting and you were saying how nice it's been and I have heard you describe it almost like a nirvana for you because you're so used to traveling all the time. Are you still feeling like that now? Oh, I've loved every single minute. And I say this with great respect and compassion, of course, because I know a lot of people have suffered um, in all different areas, whether it's through health or through finances. It's been a really tough time for so many people around the world. But personally, it's been a real blessing because last year I spent 300 days of the year away from home. And for the last three months, probably the first time in my whole adult life, I've actually spent time nearly three and a half months at home. I see my kids every day. I eat home-cooked meals. I'm in my own bed. I can go into my own garden. I'm as fit and healthy as ever because I've just had time, and time is a wonderful thing. And when you're on the road all the time, it's nowhere near as healthy and happy as it is at the moment. How do you cope with living out of a suitcase then? Or is it just something you've got so used to? Has this made you think any differently? I actually came to England when I was 16 years old. I came on a schoolboys cricket tour and I took a month out of my last year at school and I've basically been doing it ever since. So that's really my life. I've been going out with my wife since I was 15 years old, so she's growing up with it. She just knows and my kids know no difference. So I guess you get used to it in a sense, but... Look, when you spend as much time away, there's every single day at home is like a is like a gift. It's like a holiday, and I love being home. Uh, and at the moment, that's why I'm enjoying it so much. And is it made you think? Because you have done it since you were 16 as a player, and now as a manager, as a as a coach, has it made you think any different? I don't know because you're enjoying it so much at home. I tell you, it's making me think. If this is what my retirement looks like. You'll be happy. Bring it on, baby. <laughs> Bring it on. Oh. Man, like I'm doing, and I'm doing so many amazing things. Like I literally, through, and what I've learned is I'll never, ever, ever have a face-to-face meeting ever again if I can help it because in Perth, all my mates from the eastern states, for as long as I've been giving me a hard time saying WA is so far away that you need a passport to get in and blah da 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 and we have the time difference. And actually... Usually I've got it whether I do corporate speaking or I have to do my work. I've got to go to the Eastern States, which means at least a three-hour flight, sometimes a five-hour flight to Brisbane. So you're on another plane, you go to another another hotel, and I just think through technology, it has been an unbelievably good lesson for us that maybe I'll never have a face-to-face meeting ever again. And you'd be quite happy with that. Do you quite like a screen then? Because some people don't like it. I mean, personally, I like. I'd much rather be sat sat with you now having a cup yeah, of, well, of course no of course but but in terms of how our business efficiency yeah and, and and health you know we all talk about balance right balance in life and and it's almost like a um cliche these days balance 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 well if it means that i spend more time at home mm. when i could be meeting and when i don't actually have to be in uh, um over east or in another country then this is brilliant. We get all our work done. And, you know, it's been funny because I've done, in the last three months, I've probably done 10 corporate presentations. I've spoken to 
20 or 25 different teams around the world on the back of the documentary we did. And I put my, my shirt on, I put my jacket on, and I have my tracksuit pants and my Ugg boots on. And it's like gold. They all think I'm all corporate and all being all <laughs> smart. And then I walk out of here, I press leave meeting, I've talked to Whip I your shirt to off. <laughs> Put your shirt off. And then go and have my favourite coffee from my kitchen at home or walk into my garden or go for a run on the beach, which is across the road. Like it's just gold. And I, I, honestly, it is so many lessons have come out of this period and hopefully we can actually put this whole concept of balance into working rather than just talking about it. And what about from a player's standpoint? You know, you've been concerned around mental health, especially some of them maybe don't have families. Well, in, in a sense, it's been a real blessing for us because some of our guys have been on the road for two years. We're not like a lot of the other sports where we play for six months, have a six-month break. In cricket, we play pretty much 12 months of the year. So therefore, it came, again, I say with respect and, and uh, compassion that it came at a really good time for our players because they were able to recharge, re-energise, see their families, take a little bit of a mental and a physical break from the game. But now they just, they're all so fit. They're, they're in the great, best physical shape of their life. I was really interested to see how they came back. You find out a lot about people, how they come through these tough times. They're all in great shape and now they will be absolutely busting to come to England to play some cricket. So hopefully we'll arrive about the 23rd or 24th of August and they will be, oh man, they, they can't wait to start playing cricket. Yeah, I can imagine. How's that been going then from a leadership point of view? Well, it's been fine because when you walk out in the middle in a game of cricket, you don't have your coaches with you. You're actually on your own. And a lot of the, the guys have had to train by themselves They've had to work out ways of practising by themselves. I think there'll be some real upside to it, actually. Uh, from a leadership point of view, I've learned some amazing lessons. I've, I've got to speak to some incredible coaches and some, some incredible leaders of the corporate sector. I mean, on the board of a, the West Coast Eagles football club in the AFL, which have been hit really hard like the other sports, the lessons I've learned from that will certainly help me as a leader in, in my field of cricket, that's for sure. What are those lessons I've been treated? Because I get asked a lot about leadership and I think we have a certain view sometimes that doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of what makes a good leader. Well, leadership for me, it's, it, the, the, the word leadership comes from leading the ship. So, And that's how you look at it. In leading the ship, one, think about the iceberg. Think about the Titanic. And that's been the crisis, right? The, you, hit the, you hit the iceberg and the ship, the ship sinks. No matter how beautiful and how big the ship is, it sinks. So the captain's got to keep an eye out and how you respond when the crisis comes. We've just been, we're going through that with COVID. And then the next time the captain has to come out is through when the stormy waters, right? So, and we're going through stormy waters now. The crisis has been there. Now, how do we navigate our way through these stormy waters? Well, the third time the captain has to come out of the ship, is when you have mutiny on deck. And there's lots of people who are struggling at the moment, so that's when you're going to bring your man management skills out. And the rest of the time, the leader has to sit back and let everyone do their job and just guide them to the next port or the next destination. And I think it's been really significant in this period. We've had the crisis. The great leaders have been able to, through optimism and through vision and, and through work ethic, navigate through the crisis, the iceberg, they're now going, we're all going through stormy waters in the economic sense and in the, the mental health sense. 
So how do we deal with that? You've got to use your skill for that. And then, of course, there's our people. And our people are the most important thing for us in any business. So how we keep caring for them, how we keep empathising with them and, and working with them to come through the other end. So that's been a great lesson for me in leadership, which is practical. It's happening to all of us right now. It's interesting you say that because I spoke to a couple of football managers who were talking about how they how they man manage. You know, it's not just about tactics or about coaching or about competition, is it? I mean, you're shaking your head now. It's so much about how you man manage and work individually with a player. What's your view on that? It's all about people, no doubt. See, and, and one of the things I've got the benefit of being a head coach is that I'm a parent. So I've got four kids. And what I've learned from having four kids, I've got four daughters, and they come from the same place, they have the same upbringing, and they're all so different. They are so different, they're, and their personalities are different, their struggles are different, their, their likes and dislikes are different. So my point about that is that if my four kids who come from the same place are all different, all my players are different. They are also, and you've got to treat the big lesson I've learned about leadership, and this is quite confronting for a lot of people, is that you have to treat everyone differently. The easy way of doing it is think, oh, we can just treat everyone the same, and they've all got the same values and got the same behaviours, and everyone's just got to be exactly the same. Well, that's not life. That's not real. We're not talking about robots. We're talking about human beings. So you've got to take time to build relationships. You've got to take time to care for your people. And the benefit, it takes a lot of work to do that, but the benefits, I've always said that I will judge my performance as a coach by how many wedding invitations I get and how many christening invitations I get at the end of my career. Because what that means is that my players know that I care for them and I've earned respect for them and we'll still win trophies because we've got lots of talent and our main business is to win trophies on the surface but for me personally, it's, as I say, it's about how many wedding invitations and how many christening invitations because that's a really, really important part of successful leadership. Mm, it's really, yeah, it's a really good point, actually. Because um, some people would say, oh, it's not about being liked, but at the same time, it's about if your players don't like you, they won't want to work for you, I suppose, and in a way, or they won't want to play for a team. And we see that when teams are fractioned. It's about respect, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. about respect. And if... Um, I'll tell you, there's the great captain, Steve Waugh. So Steve Waugh was the great Australian and the great leader at one stage in Australian of the Year. He is a legend and tough. He is so tough. It's scary tough, right? So, And he's now like, if Steve Waugh asked me to run through a brick wall right now, I would run as hard as I could. Not because I'm an idiot, but because the great captain, the great leader wouldn't ask me to run through the brick wall unless, one, he'd go through it himself and two, unless he thought I could get through it. Mm. In 1998, Steve Waugh, the great captain, I was under pressure for my spot in the team. And the day before the test match against Pakistan, and they were like the great Manchester United team, Pakistan at the time. They had the scariest fast bowling attack in the history of the game. Anyway, the day before the game, we were in Hobart in Tasmania, and Steve Waugh at breakfast, and Steve Waugh comes, Lane, come here, I need to talk to you. So when Steve Waugh talks, you listen. And I said, well, what's the matter, Captain? And he goes, right, I don't want you to listen to the press anymore. I don't want you to read the papers. I don't watch the TV. I want listen to the radio. I want you in the team. Your teammates want you in the team. The selectors want you. You are the best number three batsman in Australia. Show us what you got. Don't worry about all the outside noise. I went, oh. And I felt like Superman because privately he's telling me 
He's backing me personally, right? He's backing me privately. But that's not the story. About four hours later at practice, and I had my pads and my bat under my arm, and he was getting interviewed in the press conference, and there was a, one of the journalists had his dictaphone in his hand, and he's saying to Steve, as I'm walking past, he goes, so, Steve, have you got any advice for Justin Langer? You've obviously, you know, if he fails again, you can't keep picking him. And I felt like the whole, I wanted the whole earth to open up and swallow me alive because this is what they're all saying about me. Steve Wall looked at him straight in the eyes. He goes, yes, Malcolm, I've got some advice for Justin Langer. Stop reading your shit. So not only is he backing me privately, he's also backing me publicly, right? Great leadership. Guess what happened? It was the best test match I ever played in my test career. It was the, my best innings. It was the greatest victory Australia ever had. It was the second test victory in our run of 16 straight test match wins. It was unbelievable. So that's I knew he cared about me privately and publicly, and that's great leadership. And then that's what I have learned so many lessons like that. And if I can take that through my time in as a coach or in leadership, well, then hopefully I'll have some success. And, oh, you, make, you, you bring up so many points that I want to ask you about because – I think a lot of sports people come under so much scrutiny. Um, I was, you know, talking across very different sports, but I was also talking to Kevin Peterson about this. Um, and you know what he was treated like by the press. I, I don't know, what is it about, how hard is it in cricket? Because you're, it's almost like cricket, you're so exposed. Well, and we're very accessible too in cricket. And look, there's a couple of sides. One thing, if, if I gave any young aspiring athlete in fact if I could give anyone any advice at all that's in the public eye zero social media and I'll tell you why I say that because I don't need anyone telling me how any strangers telling me how good I am more importantly I don't need strangers telling me how bad I am because I know if I'm playing well if I know I'm playing poorly I don't need strangers telling me that what I do need is the people who I respect, my family and my friends and the people who keep me grounded, they'll let me know. I don't need strangers telling me that. That's why the media, why do I need to hear from the media how good I am? I certainly don't need to know how bad I am because you, we talk about mental health. My gosh, you've got to be so flipping tough if you think you can get through that and you learn that through wisdom and experience, right? So that was the one thing. And then the other thing is, one of my pet hates in life is people, they pay their 20 quid or their 20 bucks and they come and watch a sporting game and they think they can say whatever they want and they abuse their people who are trying so hard out on the field and they, just, they can abuse them and say whatever they want and people, oh, you've got to have a sense of humour. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Some of the things I, we were exposed to in England last year, I still can't believe it during the World Cup and the Ashes. I cannot believe it. And they're from parents who had their little kids next to them. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But, oh, well, you know, you get paid a lot of money, so harden up. You, oh, man. If, if people said that to my children, I would be, I'd be shattered. And my, my players become like my kids. And you, you feel for them, you know. And, but it's part of what we choose to go into. And I get all that. But... It's still common decency, it's common courtesy, and it's really lacking in our communities today. What does it feel like then? Because you, you brought it to the core that it was only last year and there was so much heckling and abuse. And like you said, it's, we have this perception that it's from like yobs or hooligans or whatever. We don't want to term them as, but it's just 
by normal people, like you said, that have got kids next to them. And then when you go in the changing rooms, I mean, you know, what's it feel like for, for you, for players, for the team, for the staff as well to be in that situation? Because like you said, and this has been a conversation I've had before with really high profile uh, sports people, that it's almost like, well, you've got money or you put yourself in this position, but at the end of the day, you're still humans. And we've heard so many people and especially cricketers talk about their mental health, you know, when they've left the game because of mental health. You know, two and a half years ago, Australian cricket made a really bad mistake, right? One of our players put sandpaper on the ball and the kid who did it, Cameron Bancroft, if you lined up a thousand people, he'd be the last person I say would do it. So we made a big mistake and our guys paid a huge price for that. I think the ICC suspended Steve Smith and David Warner for one game. Cricket Australia took it so seriously, we banned them for one year. So we took it seriously because we don't cheat. We made a mistake and the boys made a mistake and they paid the price, right? But the very first day I was interviewed when I became head coach two and a half years ago, they kept asking, oh, well, Steve Smith and Dave Warner and Cameron Bancroft. And I said, okay, no worries. And I'll say this to everyone listening to this podcast. If there's one person listening to this podcast who hasn't made a mistake in their life, you're a liar. You're kidding yourself. They made a public mistake and they've paid the price for it. It's, you know, there's not one person who hasn't made a mistake in their life. And so, of course, we've got to give them another crack at it, another chance. I mean, some of the stuff I was hearing about that, I just couldn't believe because no one has not made a mistake. And what does it feel like? The hardest thing is you're in a completely no-win situation. You can't fight back. You can't say anything because you become an even worse bloke. So you, what you have to do, and, and one of my proudest moments of the last two and a half years of being coached for the Australian cricket team was our time in England last year. Our guys not once. They kept Steve Smith showed incredible class and he just kept walking and kept batting and he's such a brilliant young kid. David Warner, he's like a little street fighter. And you know what? He made, yeah, he made a mistake. You should see him with his three little girls. He's got three daughters. He's got a great wife. You should see him. My family love him and his family because you see the little street fighter, he's such a good person. So, and I, we've got to sit there and listen to the abuse they get and it, it, it's, it hurts. Now, I know the tabloids in England are going to have a field day with me saying that, but it's true. The tabloids, remember, if it was your kids, yeah. how would you feel about it? If it was your friends, how would you feel about it? But that's life, you know, we get on. And what my point was, what the most proud I was of our players are the way they kept getting up and they never fought back except on the cricket field with their bat or their ball and they kept smiling their way through it. And, you know, we'd get on the bus, we'd leave the change room, get on the bus and the abuse was, oh, and our guys at the end were just laughing about it. And that takes great courage to do that, great, great strength. And hopefully, hopefully they would have grown from that experience. It takes so much resolve, though, for it not to affect confidence, oh. self-belief, um, doubt. I don't, you know, gosh, with that creeping in, I don't know how much did you have to almost, like you said, be a parent to make sure that it didn't start to make them question themselves. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. Well, and you've got, to, you've got to be on it all the time. One thing that you have to be is watching over your, over your players we talk about man management. You've got to be watching over them all the time. And a lot of them, like, I'm sure it's the same with English men, but one thing that Aussie blokes aren't very good at is talking. 
And it's the biggest mistake. I mean, I learned that in 2001 on the Ashes series, I'd been dropped and I was like, did what Aussie blokes do, I guess, or men, let's say men do. I'm sure there's a lot of women who are the same. I'm just going to train harder. I do. I'm going <laughs> to practice more and I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to work it out myself. And that did not work. I remember, this is a true story. I remember walking off at Hove at Sussex. I was trying so hard to get back in the Australian cricket team. Steve Waugh had torn his calf muscle. There was an opening for the fourth test in 2001. And I was trying so hard. I was in the best physical shape of my life. I practiced more than me. And I was literally batting worse than this pen. I could not perform because I was so emotional about getting dropped. And it was building up and I was so, it was so, and I remember getting out for a duck in the second innings. My chances of playing the fourth test were not going to happen. And I remember walking off the ground and I wanted the earth to open up and swallow me whole. And I was going home. I was going home. I was going to quit that night. That's how low I was. I I could not. And I remember the great lesson. I, I remember grabbing Adam Gilchrist and saying, look what you guys have done. He was one of the selectors and he's like my brother. He is one of my favorite people on earth. I love Gilly that. And I grabbed him. I said, look what you've done to me. And it had nothing to do with what I'd done to myself. because I hadn't had the wisdom or courage to talk. We got back to the hotel, the Grand Hotel in Brighton, and the coach, John Buchanan, Adam Grookers, grabbed me and we went and sat in the bar straight from the ground, had a couple of beers and talked. And for the first time, I actually talked and talked. I was angry and I was sad and I was talking. It was like spewing out cancer. And then when we left there, John Buchanan, he's got five kids. It was like when when you have your first kiss. We're going up, I was going right to my room. He's going left to his room and he sort of dropped his bag. He got this funny look on his face. There's my funny look on it. And he grabbed and gave me this big hug. And it was, he said, I've been wanting to do that for eight weeks, but I just haven't had the right moment. And he gave me this big hug. And I went, oh. And then I rang my family and I rang my mother, I rang my wife, I rang my best mate. And they thought I was going to jump off the bloody, the first floor or the fifth floor, right wherever I was. And the next morning, my wife rang me and said, I'm flying over. And she flew my, with my third daughter, who was two months old. In 24 hours, she flew to England. I'd spoken to Gilly and um, Johnny Hoden, my mates back. I went and had for dinner with Steve War the next night. And he goes, look, mate, I know what's going to happen, but just hang in there. Just hang in there. You never know. So she flew over. One week later, when I was going to retire, sorry, nine days later, I was going to retire nine days before. I got a phone call from Steve Waugh, mate. I'm just letting, letting ring you, let you know we're going to play you as an opener in the last Test match. I'm going, Tugger, I'm batting worse than any. I'm batting worse than Charlie Webster. I've never even seen a bat before. Right? He goes, No, nah, I think you'll be okay. We're dropping Michael Slater. I get selected and I get a hundred in the last Test, and I open with Matthew Hayden for the next five years. <laughs> in the worst moments, one, you need your mates. Two, you need to talk. Three, you need to hang in there. And if you do, you never know what's around the corner. And what a great, it was an amazing, amazing experience for me to go through the darkest time to come out the other end, which ended up being the best five years of my cricket career. And look at where you are now. It's actually even listening to you, it's quite emotional because I'm definitely somebody that, you know, used to spend a lot of time like like bottling things up and I'm very, very headstrong. So I do the same as you. I know I'm not in your position, but very like just work harder, do more uh, kind of thing and not speak out. You know, I, I think what you've just said is really incredible and powerful to me 
Charlie, there's two things I've learned. I'm now nearly 50 years old, right, in, in life actually. One, I say this to young guy, people all the time, the harder you try, the worse it gets. The, we also, now, what do you mean you can't try hard? In sport, the harder you try, the work, because you tighten up. It doesn't matter what sport you're in and you're tight and you can't move. In my sport, if my forearm isn't loose and my face isn't loose, my feet can't dance. And I can't, if my feet don't dance, I can't make any runs. So that's important. The harder you try, the work. The second one is the two most powerful words almost in my life are let go. Two How words. do you do that? No, 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 no. You know, it is a complete mindset. It is a complete mindset. And so I go back to that story. I opened the batting, right? I swear to God, this is what happened. The day before the test match, my wife is flying back to Perth. And I get this phone call, Lane, you're playing test match. Sorry. And I said, I promise, no matter what happens, I'm going to have fun. Because the last time, I never played for Australia. I'm going to have fun no matter what, right? So this is what happens next. The next day I'm at the Oval, toss to the coin, Steve Wall brings it up, we are batting first. I remember sitting on my chair, just about to put my pads on, and I got that same feeling. I had for eight weeks, come on, this is your big chance. If you make runs, come on. And I felt this tension coming up through my body. And then for something happened, I said, you know what? No, no, you promised yourself you're going to have fun. So I got up. I still had one pair. I didn't have my shirt on. I walked over to a guy called Damien Fleming, who's the funniest man in the world, and he told me a little joke. I start laughing and I put the music box on. I started dancing. I started relaxing. I say to Matthew Hayden, my great mate, I'm going to open with him for the first time, my best mate. I open the batting with him. I say to him, put my pads on. I said, come on, buddy, let's go have some fun. And all my teammates look at me like I'm on drugs. They're going, <laughs> I'm serious. You haven't smiled for eight weeks. I'm going, come on, let's go have some fun. And then I'll never forget about Jeff Miller, who was the England selector, who's a brilliant afternoon speaker. And he was standing at the bottom of the steps and he was looking all serious. I remember looking down at him, smiling at him. And I know he's a funny man, but he was all serious. All of a sudden, he's got this massive smile on his face because I'm smiling. Then I walked out. I said, good morning to most of the crowd as I'm walking down. I then say hello to Nasser Hussein and Andy Caddick, who I thought at the time, who are now mates of mine, I thought they were absolute knobs as English cricketers. <laughs> Andy Caddick was my most hated player in the world. Then I played with him at Somerset with his, one of the best guys I've played. I'm saying hello to them. And then saying hello to the umpires. I'm just going, I'm like I'm going to a nightclub. <laughs> and, I'm just going, and all of a sudden I'm relaxed. And this is what happens next. This is unbelievable. I'm on seven runs. I go to pull one off Caddick. I get caught by Mark Ramprakash, right, on seven, end of my career. No ball. It's a no ball. So I'm going, oh, my God. So all of a sudden I'm getting mother crickets on my side because I've just decided to relax. And then a hundred, I get a hundred. It was unbelievable. And then on 104, Andy Caddick hits me in the helmet, knocks me out. I've got blood coming out of my ear and everyone's all worried. You've got a hundred. I remember going up to the top into the change room and our manager rings my mum and we're like, are you okay, darling? I said, am I okay? Mum, I'm back. <laughs> Don't worry about my ear or my head. I'm fine. So the point was, it is a mindset. It yeah. is a And I've learned it so many times. If you teach yourself to let go and relax, you still have to concentrate and you still have to focus. There's a word in martial arts, Kime, K-I-M-E. Bruce Lee talked about it and it means basically loose body, focused mind. Mm. All great sports people, loose body, but they're concentrating and that's what you try and aspire, I used to try and aspire to 
as a player, and I try and encourage my players, stay loose, stay relaxed, but concentrate on what's important. Yeah, because you've got, have you got a black belt in martial arts? Yeah, I love, yeah, I love. Yeah, I did martial arts as a kid as well, and it reminds me we're talking about is boxing because I box and it's exactly the same. Like I'm terrible if I'm really tense because you can't let your arms go, and it's the same thing. It's all, but it's so contradictory to what we think. And sometimes I fall in that habit because, like, it's like hard work pays off, and it's and of course it does, but it's really hard sometimes to to let it go, especially when you have doors slammed in your face and you have, you know, you're dropped from a team like you were talking about and those rejections. And I was going to ask you as well. On- My view on tough days, we all have tough days, right? And we have really tough days when you get dropped or you get sacked. I got more, I had a lot more bad days as a batsman than I did good days. I had a lot more low scores than I got hundreds, right? But my view is simple as this. You either quit or you get better. Yeah. Simple. And people yeah. know it's not that it is. You quit or you get better. And and getting better for me meant learning how to let go. Learning how to, uh, you know, I mean, in 1993, I got dropped for the first time from the Australian cricket team. And I got told by this old uh, guy called John Wright, who's a great old coach, he's a bit of a hippie, tough New Zealander. After the test match, before I got dropped to come to England in 93, I hear you sitting there with a cigarette and a, and a beer. And he said, I've been watching you, young fella. You're trying way too hard. You're putting too much pressure on yourself. I said, I think you should learn transcendental meditation. And I went, what? Transcendental what? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay, I didn't think anything more of it. Then I got dropped and I was sitting at home in Perth, sleepy Perth, open up the West Australian newspaper and there's this big advertisement, learn transcendental meditation. So, of course, I ring the guy Derek from Smythe Road, Claremont. I still this is... In 1993, and I rang him and I learned transcendental meditation. And I've meditated every single day since. Mm-hmm. And that helped me. Like, you get better. It doesn't mean you've just got to practice more and you've got to try harder. It means you've got to learn to get better. And for me, it was about learning how to relax, learning how to let go, learning how to concentrate on what's important. And that's all the, the art of getting better. Um, I know about your, I kind of have read a bit about the meditation that you've done. And about, I think, three years ago, I, I like suffered from PTSD and meditation was one thing that I started to learn. And wow, it made a difference. And it's exactly what we're talking about. It's almost, I think people think you sit there and you have to completely be blank and it's almost like forced, but it's the complete opposite, isn't it? It's about being able to let go. And it's about being able to calm the nervous system down. How does it, how does meditation make you feel? Well, it's like, I would guarantee even the Dalai Lama is a human, right? Last time I checked, Dalai Lama is a human being, right? I guarantee when he's meditating, he'll have thoughts. Yeah. We all have thoughts. So it's not about having no thoughts. That's impossible. It's just about with the thoughts, learning whether it's coming back to your breath or coming back to a mantra, just coming back and having those little peaceful moments. The best way for me to describe meditation is really hard to intellectualise it. Yeah. But I know I feel so different. And I know that my life is better for every, we talked at the very start of this 300 days of the year, last year I was away and that's been my normal adult life. The first thing I do when I get into a hotel room, wherever I am in the world, I drop my bags and look for the spot where I'm going to meditate the next day or meditate. So it might be the corner of a room, might be on a chair, wherever, because what it does, it just gives me my little bit of peace, which I know wherever I am in the world, I've still got little piece of routine which I know I can do every single morning I'm sure it helped me with my concentration as a player I'm sure it helps me with my calmness 
as a coach and a parent. And that's why I find it so important in my life. How much does it interconnect with your faith? Uh, do you think it, it brings you closer to God? Do you think it, or do you think it's separate to, to your faith as well? Because I know that's a big part of your life. It is. Uh, no, I think I used to have this little, in my, uh, when I was growing up, I used to have in a plastic cover in my shower. So I saw it every day. I said that the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. And then so one quote, then I had four little boxes and I saw I could look at it every day. I couldn't tick it because it was obviously in the shower. It was wet, but physical. So that was just fitness and, and how I was physical. Mental, so my concentration, my goal setting, all that sort of stuff. Technical, so the technical sides of my batting. And the fourth box was spiritual. So that just basically meant spiritual for me means I always felt if I was happy off the field, I'd go well on the field. Mm. So meditation helps me stay happy. My my faith allows me to stay happy and grounded. So they basically go into that. And, and for me, it's just, um, and I know, again, some tabloids will have an absolute feel there, but I don't give a shit. I honestly don't care because it makes me feel happy. And everyone who knows me, that's all I worry about. And it, as long as it makes me feel keep grounded, it makes me, makes me calm and I would say my faith and my meditation both have been very important to allow me to do that and still are to this moment. Isn't it interesting that you say, oh, tabloids would have a field day about, but it's almost like why? Do you think, like, what is it about, you know, even we're talking about spiritualism and we're talking about faith and you've mentioned uh, earlier on in this conversation around the kind of toughness or, or the... Oh, I don't know, sometimes the thing, the, the steel wall that we wrap around ourselves and you mentioned Australian men and English men as a woman. I think it also applies to, to women as well. I mean, I'm from the North. I'm from Yorkshire. <laughs> you know, we're brought up like that as well. Um, you know, suck it up, just deal with it type of thing. I don't know. Why is it talking about spiritualism and faith that would be a problem? Well, that's why I don't care. This is yeah, the thing. It's just interesting. And vulnerability is so important. And, yeah. and I know one of the most important values in my life, and, and it's important in the Australian cricket team or any team I'm involved, is honesty. And honesty means looking someone in the eye and telling them the truth. The second one is being meticulously honest with yourself. That's really important. Um, and I had to be very – the biggest lesson I've learned, I would say – coming from being the head coach of Western Australia, the head coach of the Australian cricket team, is I have to be so disciplined in what I say in the media because my my life is I'm so – I just say it. I just tell people and they can – but now people can turn that around as they like. So I've got to be really disciplined with that, and that's okay. That's just – that goes back to the pain of discipline, nothing like the pain of disappointment, right? But mm-hmm. I, I, I just – I honestly don't care. I, I learned a great lesson about – I won't use the swear word because I'll, I'll keep it clean, but there's a guy called Kerry Packer, and Kerry Packer, was he was the one who, through Channel 9, he was the one who invented World Series cricket in a sense or bought World Series cricket, which was basically one-day international cricket. And he, in Australia, is he was a tycoon, a legend. And I had dinner with him six weeks before he died, and there was Matthew Hayden and myself, there was Steve Waugh at his house and he said at the end of the night with the guy who took us, Alan Jones, who's another legend in Australia, he says to Kerry Packer, what do you think, Kerry, you reckon we should teach the boys the most valuable lesson they'll ever learn in their life? And we're going, oh, this is like coming from, I don't know, 
someone in Britain who you're just going to go, what is he going to tell me or what is she going to tell me that's going to change my life? And he goes, yeah, I think they're ready. And he sat there and he said to us, boys, in this life, as long as you know who you are and your friends know who you are, the rest can go and get however you want to say it. That's right. That is one of the great lessons in life. And that's why I say about social media or and the brilliant, you know, the Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena. I'll say that to every single person in this life. Read it, memorize it, read it. The man in the arena. Because anyone can be a critic, anyone can tear you apart. As long as you know who you are and your friends know who you are and your family are, who cares? Who cares? But that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of strength. And I look, there's still days where I want to oh, tear some critics apart, but I just go, breathe, baby. Just breathe, mate. Just don't worry about it. I'm human as well, like everyone, everyone. And that's a really hard art to master, but it's very liberating too if you get to that point. You know that quote, I've actually got it on a, on a canvas in my yeah. flat. I nearly ran over to grab it to show you, um, but that's that's crazy. You're one of the few people I've heard say that because that's one of the most important things for me. It's like no matter what, at least I can say and you can say that you put yourself out there and you you had the courage to do so, which is far better than not. That's courage, right? I remember at Christmas here in Australia last summer we had these horrendous bushfires. You might have seen them through the um, airwaves over there. Horrendous bushfires. And our Prime Minister got smashed, like, because all of a sudden the bushfires become his fault, right? So I remember speaking, uh, texting the Prime Minister, like, how's me, texting the Prime Minister, but I said, for what it's worth, I love the man in the arena. I said, mate, I would hate to be in your shoes. You can't win. Yeah. And he said, funny you, funny you say, yeah. should say that, because I've got that in my office. Of, I've got that in my, in my office as well. It's one of the greatest... Yeah. Uh, the, the arena like if you have the courage to put yourself out yeah you're going to get criticized and yeah you're going to have bad days but my gosh the rewards and the what you learn about yourself and the layers you get in your character the layers you get in your life and and i'll tell you another thing is about uh, three years ago on monday actually my mum passed away my beautiful mum who i love ovarian cancer and she was like oh i love my mum so much and a few months before, my best mate died of a heart attack. So within a few months, I lost my best mate, my longest serving, who I've known since I was a kid, and my mum. And what I realized in the darkest time, like there's nothing can be worse than that for me, right? But you get through it. You get through it. And we're here, if you have the right mindset, you can get through it. You can get through anything. Even the worst shit you can get through. But... You've got to have the right mindset. You've got to learn from it. You've got to, the very fact that we're talking about it now, you know, you can learn from it. You know, you can, you, and the lesson I learned was no matter how bad it gets, you can get through it. We can get that through anything. say to anybody that's had losses like that as well. Yeah, the, you, you mourn, everyone mourns in a different way, but you can get through it. You can get through it. The worst thing that can happen you, you can get through it. And and what I've learned in life, no matter what happens, there's, there's three, there's, uh, Robert Frost, I think, said, life can be summed up in three words. It goes on. So therefore, like the two words let go, those other three words are powerful. It goes on. So the sun will come up tomorrow 
and the sun will set. In fact, right now in Perth, we have the most, I'm looking out my window at the most beautiful sunset. I'm, we're so lucky. But the sun will come up and the sun will set. No matter what happens, that's what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, you've got a choice. You're going to say, oh, what a beautiful sunset. What a beautiful sunrise. Or you can say, oh, I hate that sunset. I hate that sunrise. Your choice. Your choice. <laughs> we all hurt. We're all human, but your choice. Justin, literally, you've made me want to dance around. <laughs> you've been, it's just been amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much. I could just, I could just keep on going. Um, honestly, thank you so much for spending time with us. And and I know you've been really busy today, trying to sort out um, your team coming to England. And really looking forward to seeing you here. And thank you so much for your insight and everything, and your openness and your gen genuinity. Like it's just been amazing. Thank you so much, Justin. We're really looking forward to coming back. We had a huge with the World Cup and the Ashes last year. Can't wait. I hope Ben Stokes doesn't keep smashing us around. He broke my heart. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. But, again, I went from the worst day of my coaching career when Ben hit the – I mean, I'd have Ben Stokes in my team any day of the week. I love him. But <laughs> I went from the worst day of my coaching career. I'll never forget that night after Ben Stokes hit that – had that innings, I was sitting on FaceTime in my room in Leeds and my wife said to me, what have you got in your hand? I go – I've got scotch. And she goes, you don't even drink. I go, I do tonight, baby. I was drinking scotch in my room by myself. And then we went from the worst day of my career to 10 days later having the best, the best 10 days of my coaching career. The darkest time again became to retain the ashes. I had, I had lunch with Sir Alex Ferguson the day before that Old Trafford test. It was like the best 10 days of my life. <laughs> On the worst day of my coaching career, and we retain the ashes after. So we're all looking forward to coming back to England. It's important we do for the health of the game, and uh, we're looking forward to coming. So hopefully we'll see you when we get over there. Yeah, I'd love to. Isn't it funny, though, how, you know, you're just saying that sometimes your darkest ends becomes your highest all in the same moment sometimes. I think it's important to, to remember that sometimes. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. Thanks to Sport in Mind Charity for their support as well. And don't forget, if you're really struggling, you can reach out to charities and speak out, like Justin was saying. There are charities like Samaritans. Please remember that people do understand and there is help out there. However you're listening today, we'd be really grateful of a review and we hope you've really enjoyed the series so far. You can catch all the episodes. They're all on the um, Apple and Spotify and um, all podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. Thanks again, Justin. I'll speak again soon. See you, Charlie.